0: Ammo tasa bhavavato harahato sama Sambudasa
1: Ammo tasa bhavavato harahato sama sambhudasa.
0: Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Amen.
1: Chidoye
0: Yuan, jie, ru, lai
2: zhen, shi, yi. The unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I bow to fathom the thus-come-one's true and actual meaning. Shrufushanren, Gweishrufushongda,je omitofo, Honorable Master, Dharma Friends, welcome to our Sutra lecture. We're explaining the Avatamsaka Sutra's ten grounds. This is July twenty-first, Saturday evening. We're here in Berkeley, California, and we begin our session every week by chanting the name of the Sutra and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas that bear this Dharma. So, please join me i 'm um, going to put my palms together here and lead everybody in chanting the sutra's name oh. Please turn in your text that you should have in front of you there to page 62 and 63. 62, 63. R. And we have a, a Vietnamese translation up in the loft, if anybody would like one. We're up at the very top of the page. to read the Chinese first and if that's new if if your Chinese is still in the beginning stages uh, you can follow the romanization, the ABCs underneath each character and if you'd rather just listen then you can absorb these ancient sounds and hear the how tonal language is so musical Chinese is very musical language and uh, enjoy some of these Syllables that have been on the planet in this system for at least 5,000 years minimum. English, on the other hand, brand new. English is very dynamic. It's changing all the time. These Chinese sounds have been grooved into our consciousness for for millennia. Here we go. 此菩萨观一切法不生不灭 Inyan Nio Buji Gi Gu. Alright,
1: here
2: we go. Over to
1: English on page sixty
2: three. Um, Can we do it together? Let's read it in, in unison. Okay, here we go. This bodhisattva contemplates all dharmas as not produced and not destroyed, as existing due to causes and conditions. He first eradicates the bonds of views, then all the bonds of desire, the bonds of form, the bonds of existence, and the bonds of ignorance." which decrease to threads throughout limitless hundreds of thousands of millions of nayutas, of kalpas. Because of non-accumulation, his deviant greed, deviant hatred, and deviant stupidity all become extinguished and all of his good roots become brighter and more pure. All right. we've come to the end of the, the uh, third ground. And this is talking about a bodhisattva, an awakened being. Uh, it's gender non-specific. Could be a man, could be a woman, potentially could be another species. It's talking about how this awakened being uh, practices, puts into practice these techniques for awakening called the dharmas of the third ground. Because we've come to the end of the chapter, Uh, This is kind of summarizing, and we're actually even into a refrain that picks up from the earlier grounds and then repeats throughout the ten. And our bodhisattva has uh, developed psychic abilities. He has supernormal powers, extra special abilities. And all of it comes from a wish to help. The bodhisattva, because he now or she now is so sensitive to other people's pain that he can't just get through the day and say, oh, that's the way things are. Everybody's hurting, everybody's miserable, everybody's suffering, I'll get my own. Bodhisattva can't do that. The Bodhisattva has to do something about the pain that he or she is feeling from all sides. Because what has changed in this Bodhisattva's life is this sense of, this sense of being broken, the sense of being a unit, separate from, broken by the skin with every other being. That's different now. So the Bodhisattva feels what other people are feeling, both joy and also grief. The grief he wants to put an end to, the joy he wants to spread, to share. So having this new connection, he's, he's wired into everybody, hardwired in, so he can't simply let business go on as usual, which is birth, old age, sickness and death, and suffering in between without doing something about it. So what did he do? He said, I need to know the Dharma. If I know the Dharma, I can help, because that goes right to the root of the problem. So he set out to learn the Dharma and became a really good meditator, among other things. The uh, dhyanas were the things that the bodhisattva specialized in, and all the different samadhis that arise from that sense of stillness and purity. The bodhisattva could really make his or her mind still and pure. And the things that he discovered as he went deeper and deeper into his mind, he's reporting on these pages. That's what the sutra is about, is the discovery of the bodhisattva as he entered more deeply into the state of stillness and purity. So one of the things that he discovered is on our page tonight. He contemplates how all dharmas are not produced and not destroyed. They come together only because of causes and conditions. Okay, so let's let's stop with that for just a minute. Other people who would agree with that conclusion are the high priests of... The hard sciences, physicists, physicists, particularly quantum physicists who are no longer cutting edge, but still people listen to them, who say that's actually provable that you can have, if you put, if you run electrical fields through bubble chambers, what you can observe are these events where random things pop up without any seeming connection. They are caused, but the causes can be... The causes last as long as the stimulus, and they're gone. So, in Buddhist language, you would say, uh, dharmas are born of conditions, and they cease of conditions. If you want to make something go away, don't continue the cause. Let the cause stop, and that situation goes away. If you want a situation to continue, keep on doing it. Keep on planting the seed. So you go, well, yeah, that sounds really logical, but our Bodhisattva says, all dharmas come about entirely because of that. Causes come together, it exists. Causes go away, it stops. It sounds so basic and profound, simple, But that's the whole story. And he sees that, and he realizes a couple things. One, God is not in charge. Two, there's no such thing as fate. Three, there's no such thing as chance. Luck. Luck seems to exist, but can you make luck happen twice? Mm, it's very fickle. Luck. Ask any gambler at Las Vegas or Reno, or in the casinos up and down the coast. Does can you call luck? Mm-mm. Luck has its own time, so it doesn't come because it causes. It seems it's you try to attract it, but it goes away. Okay, is God predictable? Mm, even less than luck, maybe. God is not the reason for things to happen. According to what this vision. Now, there are the majority of the religious people in the world who disagree. God's God's will, let go and let God. That's the, that's the theistic belief, and it works for lots and lots of folks. The Bodhisattva says, that's not my experience. As I look deeply into things, what I see is there is a very, you could say, mechanical engine making things happen causes, and conditions, he says. Furthermore, fate, fate doesn't exist according to this. Fate would be, there's a force that makes things turn out the way they do. I can't influence, I I can't see it, I don't know who's in charge of it, but it's fixed. Ming, aya ku Ming. That's just, life is miserable, my life is miserable. This person, his... Fate is different, and they have a what mean right they're happy and that's just fate's on their side somehow. The Bodhisattva would say that is not my experience why? Because he or she sits still long enough until they actually can see causes rising in the mind mixed with what silence, and stillness. The, the exciting thing about meditation is even beginning meditators can make their mind quiet enough to the point where you can catch thoughts rising. Oh, nothing was going on until I smelled that smell from the kitchen and then immediately in my mind, I was, wow, I am really, I hope it's bread today. Boy, if he takes all the bread like yesterday, I'm gonna, I think I'll get my... I'll, luckily, I go in line first, and I'm going to get double the bread to so make sure he doesn't get it all. And you go, oh, guess what? That's called false thinking based on the stimulus of my nose. There was no bread yet in meditation. They haven't even hit the bell yet. But here I was fighting in lunch line with my own greed. You go, ah, yeah, that's me. That's my mind doing that. And you save a war at lunch. And then, depending on the bodhisattva's state of mind, he could say, oh, You know what? Who needs bread? If he likes bread, I would give him twice as much. You know, I'm going to go for the rice today or the noodles. So, another kind of cause. And if you sit long enough, you can catch the mind creating those causes. So, how interesting. This is not the Buddha's theory, Circle R, Buddha, you know. The Buddha's own theory. This is provable in my mind if I sit still until I'm quiet. You can see how causes arise. And if you nurture them, it exists. If you let them go, they cease all by themselves. How powerful, how amazing. That you can see the engine of the universe in your meditation if you sit still until your mind is quiet. So the Bodhisattva contemplates all dharmas is not produced and not destroyed as existing due to causes and conditions. What else? This next paragraph, I, I previewed this a couple weeks ago. I said we have coming up one of the most powerful statements in the Avatamsaka Sutra. Here it is tonight. We, we're here. This is it. It says, the bonds of views Go first. He or she wipes out this tie, this fetter. We're going to look into this word fool, bond. Go away first. Then desire goes next. Form goes third. Existence goes next. And then ignorance is the last one, which they get gradually thinner. Then it says over what? limitless hundreds of thousands and millions of nayutas of eons because of non accumulation terrible translation his deviant greed a really terrible translation deviant hatred and stupidity all become extinguished and his good roots become brighter and more pure all right that's the statement take a look here here's a bond it's a string right that's pretty pretty sturdy i could tug on this for a long time before i could make it break and its function is to hold the the, the banger to the bell because it's there these are one unit right we don't have to pick up two things and have them go looking for it when it gets lost so there's a bond that's pretty sturdy and yet it's just this is some synthetic fiber holding these together but it's sturdy And it works. It it holds it together. And you would have to be stronger than I am to just break it like that. So this is a good bond. It serves a purpose. Now, the bond that that the sutra is talking about is just like that string, only it's invisible, but it holds things together really strongly. And these five are... Uh, sequential and it's not they're not haphazard these are five ties sometimes they're called fetters fetters is an old fashioned word that just means string, rope, tie and they hold things together what are they? the first is view, jian and it just means thoughts, viewpoints opinions, uh, biases, prejudices Points of view, beliefs. The bodhisattva really believes in certain things, as do we all, as do I. Certain things that I take to be the case. That's what a tien is, a view. And some are more accurate than others. Some are out and out wrong. But the bodhisattva sees it that way. How do you see it? This is your viewpoint. This is what you, you think is the case okay and the sutra says that's a tie it's a, it's a rope it might as well be a chain right fetters could uh, the, the fool that word fool it has the uh foo has the silk radical silk is some of the strongest stuff um, i was amazed when i lived in australia at the beginning of the year to live with a spider Called an orb weaver. And they're, they're all over in, in this part of the Australian bush. And the output of silk that they weave is fantastic. They can weave a six foot web in 90 minutes. And they, they go like as if they had this built in GPS. They go up and they turn 90 degrees and they turn 90 degrees and they go down and they go and they, they make these perfect 45 degree angles off to a support. And then they weave it, and it just takes... It's this huge athletic thing that the spider is trucking through space, making this huge web. And the, the silk, the spider silk that the spider leaves behind, when you put... It's a microfiber. And when you put a bunch of them together, they can make a violin bow. Uh, a German scientist, I, I saw I was researching this stuff because I was so amazed by it. If I... I would occasionally catch a, see a a winged bug get caught in the web and apologizing to the spider and probably pissing it off. I would go and pull the insect out to give him another chance. And if, when the spider silk got one strand of it, it would stretch this far before it would pop. And if I let it go, it would just come right back. A German physicist took what, something like 500,000 threads of spider silk and made the hair of a violin bow. And everybody said it was a fabulous bow because it was, you know, unbreakable. So spider silk is extremely strong. And this fool has that silk radical in it. That's the character fool. So think of a tie, think of a fetter as spider silk. It's just so flexible and strong at the same time. And it comes out of the bottom of a spider. You know, it's a natural fiber. That's what the bonds of views, the fetters of views, do to us. If you see it that way, that's how it is. That's why these views are so strong. Fetter, here in the Buddha's uh, vocabulary, could be the same word as affliction. The fu, there are sometimes three of them, sometimes four, sometimes five depending on the list you're making. But these are things that keep keep us from waking up. They tie us to birth and death. They tie us to suffering, for sure. Chain us to the next body. We'll come around again, for sure, because of these ties. So the English word we use doesn't really matter. It's a It's a bond, a tie, a rope, a fetter, a chain. And the bodhisattva, because he now has a brand new way of seeing things, what is it? Cause and effect. He or she didn't start there. This this view of seeing all dharmas as neither born nor destroyed, but coming together when causes come together, Right? That's a brand new view. And so now he's going in and doing some major demolition in how he understood the world was put together. That's what the Dharma does, is it rebuilds the Bodhisattva's perspective on things. Okay, we went quickly over that first thing, which is what all Dharma's bu shang bu mean. What is that? It says they don't, they're not born, they don't stop. What? How can dharmas not be born and not stop? They neither are born nor do they die. They don't come into being, they don't pass away. It's like, but they're there because of causes and conditions. So, what does that say? We skipped by that pretty quickly and I want to turn around and go back to that. Why is that so powerful? Because what that says is there's no creator. If something is born, it's got to have a mom. Right? If something dies, it's got to have a killer. It's got to have something that kills it, stops it. Can you have a dharma without a a mother? Without a creator? Yeah. That's what's so amazing. The bodhisattva sees that dharmas, things, phenomena in the world come about by themselves. Things come about by themselves. So it's like, honestly, to tell you the truth... I can't entirely grasp that. Why? Does this sound exist before I hit it? Nope. It exists after I hit it, right? I didn't hear it until I hit it. Well, somebody said, well, you created that sound. Yeah, logically, that makes sense to me. The sutra says, all dharmas do not come into being nor do they stop. They don't, I'm sorry, that's not correct. They, they don't have a maker and they don't have a destroyer. They do come into being when conditions come together. So how far back do you go? Well, this is wooden. If you want to go and start tracing it back, you could say when the tree was planted that created the wood that was then turned into a bonger, then that condition started. And likewise here. And then I had to come into being. But you could challenge, if you didn't hear it, did it exist? Conditions came into being, which is my ears were there, I was within hearing of it. You know, it's like conditions is this huge field of conditions. If you are deaf, even though I went, you didn't hear it, right? Because you were deaf. So that condition is... So you get to, this is big as the sutra is describing this it's a big, big description the bodhisattva says in fact it's all created by causes and conditions so right away I don't want to make this easy for us and say right, it's just causes and conditions this is profound the bodhisattva is taking his whole understanding of how the world exists and Based on his or her meditation, is discovering there is a realm before things exist. What, is, what did Master Hua always say in our meditation? He would say, Xin Dong Bai Shi Wan Wu, Wu. Right? Wan Wu Mie. When the mind is moving, The hundred things exist. When the mind is still, the ten thousand phenomena cease. So you go, that's deep. Okay? So, I don't want to make this too easy because honestly, I don't understand what it means to not be produced or not destroyed. But I do know there are musicians who say that if you can turn your ear, your hearing around, you can get to a place before music exists. And yet you're still playing. Go. Oh, that's profound. Why? Because the mind is quiet. You realize that this this coming into being of conditions exists. And then there's the mind that perceives it. There's subject and object, there's ear and sound. Is there a place before that separation of ear and sound? Guanyin Bodhisattva would say, yes indeed. Fan, one's the Xing, Xing, wu Shang Dao. You turn the hearing back to hear the self-nature, and the self-nature, the intrinsic nature, merges with the path, the Tao. And There is only this existence of vibration. So, okay, we're going way deep, and I'm out of my depth. I have to confess, this is not my realm. But the sutra has opened it up and said the bodhisattva is able to make her mind quiet to the place where, and go to that place where there's stillness, and you can perceive vibrations, and you realize you are vibrating. Right What is a cell of the body? Well, science would tell us the cell of the body is mostly space, mostly emptiness, empty space with neutrons, protons, electrons buzzing around every atom, every molecule is mostly emptiness with a little bit of weight in there, a nucleus in this this is hydrogen chloride, you know oxygen, calcium, all the different elements we've identified, come together and create water. H2O. Take away H3O, it's not water anymore. Made of conditions. So, here we are, the Bodhisattva enters this realm where things come together because of conditions. And when conditions go apart, things cease. He experiences that in his meditation. And bit by bit, what happens? His points of view change. I'm not so sure anymore about things that I used to think were really, really true. It's not so clear anymore. What goes next? Desire. The bonds of desire get thinner over many eons. Oh, boy. I gave that little illustration of smelling the smell of fresh bread. That'll do it to me every time. Fresh bread, boy. Fresh bread puts me immediately back in my mother's kitchen, my grandmother's kitchen in Canada. I had a grandmother, bless her heart, who baked every single day. And that doesn't mean she turned on the bread machine. What did she do? She put on her apron. Her apron was her bread machine, right? She didn't press a button. She put on her apron. And every day, and first thing she did was get out the flour. And by golly, it came out the breadboard and from my grandmother's breadboard every day came bread, pies, cakes uh, pancakes, griddle cakes plum pudding uh, fritters you know, what else am I leaving out? muffins, biscuits, rolls scones she's a good Irish woman housewife every day she had flour up to her elbows you know and you could go into her kitchen every single day and smell fresh bread, baking, and pies and cakes and cookies. Oh, boy. Because she grew up in Quebec, in eastern Canada, French Canada, where it was so cold. Oh, 30 or below zero for a lot of the winter. And the way you dealt with it was food. You chugged down those calories, and they came from grandmother's bread machine, which were her two hands and her apron. Right? So, grandmother was a baker. And I actually forget what I was illustrating. I was riffing on my grandmother. What point was I making with that? (laughs) Telling you a bread machine? I forget. Great story, but I forget my point. (laughs) Desire, desire. Ah, I got it. Desire. So, when I sit here and somebody has plugged in the bread machine in the kitchen and I'm going... It takes about one whiff, and I'm back in my grandmother's kitchen, and immediately I think, "How much bread am I going to scarf down my throat today?" You know, Who else is eating? Let me see. you know. I haven't moved an inch. I'm sitting still, and I'm already fighting with my Dharma brothers for the bread. And you go, "That's called desire." Desire. The stillness of my mind is invaded by my desire for bread. Because I learned early on that what bread was good, it had grandma 's love, it brought pleasure, and I wanted it. I always wanted more than I could actually eat. I could never eat enough to where I was satisfied. I wanted she had the whatever that ingredient she put in her baking in her baked goods, it made you want more. no matter how much you ate, you wanted more. What a, it must have been her love or something, you know, you could feel it. She was just, it was that secret ingredient which was, you just wanted to eat it all, you know, it was so good. Anyway, so desire has what quality? The quality of desire is, cannot be satisfied. Never enough. And the classical definitions are wealth, sex, fame, food, sleep. Those are said to be the five desires. And then sherpa would say, five roots of the hells, or desires, he would say. And that's a dramatic way to say it. But the idea about desire is, how much is enough? The answer is, never. No amount. Right? You'd never get enough of desire. So that bond, that ties us to what? To our sense organs. How did I experience my grandmother's baking? My tongue and my nose. So it was here first. Right? It was the olfactory and gustatory organs. Smell and taste. Boy, I wanted it. Oh, it was so good. And it just, when you ate that, my grandmother was really good with one thing. Plum pudding was her specialty. And it was mostly around Christmas. She would make plum pudding for a week and she we would make like dozens of plum puddings, and send them to all the kids and family and uncles and aunts and nephews and nieces, to the, the mailman, the, the postman, le car postal, en Quebec. We would, she would uh, bake plum pudding for the mailman and for everybody. And that plum pudding was such that uh, you couldn't ever finish it. You, there was never enough. You couldn't get enough. That, that's the, So desire is so strong, it can't be satisfied. And when you see it as that and can catch its power to make a monkey out of me, you can laugh at it. Because why? It's as if desire pre-exists me. Desire is out there waiting to come through me and turn me into a monkey. So interesting. Interesting. Right. It's like it's almost as if desire is a cloud somehow, waiting to grab me and use me to turn my senses into this machine that wants to consume, consume, eat, eat, eat devour, 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 devour. You know, where is that desire? When does it end? It doesn't. It's so strong that if you can stand aside and watch it, you go, "Wow, desire is really strong." You know, it can make a apparently brilliant. PhD candidate, turn him into a mass murderer who builds bombs for the police to find in his apartment, calculating for months, hoping that somebody will open that door and get blown up. Okay, by all accounts, a very kind-hearted young man, friendly, shy, quiet, who does incomprehensible things. What else could you say? Well, not, not for sure and we'll find out i'm sure people are very concerned about that what motivated somebody like that so you could say it's one of these things in the mind maybe you wouldn't be too far wrong if you said desire for what fame as a great joker fame as a great mass murderer certainly not a terrorist why because he's white change his skin color and he's a terrorist and he'd be one of the worst terrorists in America but he's not he's white so he's misunderstood soul right never mind that's another story isn't it but he was motivated by something that possessed him and allowed him to do something very inhumane right so how powerful is desire? It's a bond. It's this, desire. Right? And yet, the Bodhisattva, over many, many eons, bit by bit, makes them, what does it say? wei Weibo. Slowly gets thinner. The bonds of desire slowly get thinner over eons of time. Now, why is that significant? It's because I see so many people come to cultivate the Buddha Dharma, cultivate practices, and they're very clear and they get excited because they say, wow, the problem is desire. All I have to do is get rid of desire and I'm enlightened. (laughs) And so in a weekend or a week or 21 days, they throw themselves into their practice. I'm going to fast and I'm not going to st- close my eyes. I'm going to sleep sitting up. And I'm going to hold the Bodhisattva precepts. And I'm going to cut out sugar and milk and everything sweet. And I'm going to get enlightened, you know. And about a week later, they say, God, Buddha, Buddhists are just these just these mean-hearted, just bitter, you know, inhumane. I'm out of here. I'm going to go get baptized and, you know be born at the right hand of God. I mean, that sounds like a much better, you know. Why? It's because they throw themselves into the cutting off of desire, and I won't name any names, people who fast uh, over here. Never mind. They decide to cut off food because food creates desire. You know, I'm going to cultivate and get enlightened. And instead, they just get miserable and they blame the Dharma. It doesn't work, you know, or it's just too mean-spirited. And you, I, your, your enthusiasm is so wonderful, you know. Bless you for your enthusiasm. But understand that it takes longer than you thought. <laughs> longer than you thought. Go long, right? Go long. Don't try to cut it off overnight. The direction is correct, but the time span. Give yourself a chance to slowly bit by bit, how, how would you break through this, right? You would do it strand by strand, unless you had a very large scissors. You could cut through it quickly, but you can't cut it off. You don't cut desire off. You transform it over time. So if you decide that you're going to stop If you want to transform desire by fasting, what do you do? Start with something you can sustain. Like three glasses of milk every day go down to one. You know. And then bit by bit, eliminate the milk. If you, you know. And do it. Experiment. Do it the way the Buddha did. What did the Buddha do? Exactly that. He said, one grain of rice and one sesame seed a day. I'm going to fast myself into enlightenment well he nearly died and then at one point he said eh, i think i'll slow down not quite so fast right and he took a bowl of rice and milk soy milk probably and he got enlightened right no not, not much chance right no. so but that's, he what does jackson brown say jackson brown says take it easy take it easy don't let the sound of your own wheels drive you crazy Right? Some people go running down the road and they hear this noise. They go, What's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? Well, it's the, the rubber on the pavement. They're going so fast. Don't let the sound of your own wheels know that you're going fast. Connie. So, how do you know how much vigor to put into it? How do you know how much to put into it? Without being so pressured. Without being so pressured? Is that pressured? Pressure. I ask Sherfoo that very question. I asked Master Xuanhua that very question. His his verse was, Xu Xing Ru Deng Bai Chi Gan, Shang Xia Lai <laughs> Rong Yi Shang Chu Nan, Ru Neng Gan Shang Gong Jin Bu, Fang Fa Jie Ren Chu Huan, Ren Zai Huan. He said, Cultivating the way is like climbing a hundred foot pole. It's easy to fall down, it's very hard to go up. If at the top of the pole you can take one more step, then you're free to travel anywhere in all ten directions, he said. So I said, Shrifu, how, how, how do you know how much vigor to apply? I, I used that verse. I said, Shrifu, I know it's like trying to climb a hundred foot pole. How tight do you have to hang on? I said, Shrifu said, tight enough so that you don't fall off. Which is a typical Chan master answer, you know, it's like, it's up to you to figure it out. But if you cling to it too tightly, you won't go anywhere. And you'll get tired and you'll fall off. Because your muscles get tired. But if you decide, I can, first you start with a stepladder, you go up the stepladder. You hang on and you try until your strength allows you to take one more. And you hang on. So, another, another answer that Marty came up with was read your meters. Read your meters, right? So we don't have... To, I don't know if you have a stick shift in your car, but in the days of stick shifts, you'd have a tachometer. And it would go over from your direction, go over to the red. And if it goes in the red, you've got a downshift. You have to put in the next gear so the needle is not in the red. So if you're, if you're practicing fasting, for example and you discover that you're really hungry all the time, your stomach gives you no rest, and you're, like, tired a lot, and because you're tired and hungry, you get irritated, and you start snapping at people, including your mom, and you start thinking about food day and night, then your needle is in the red. You're not reading your meters, and you need to eat more, because your body is telling you, I need more food. So that's that's how, in other words, you're clinging to the pole too tightly. So at that point you say, okay, I'm going to eat a little more, but imagine if I could eat food that didn't cause desire. Right? There are foods, like my grandmother's bread, that the more I ate, the more I wanted. And mind you, that was good food, but it also had that ability to, and she was really liberal with the, the sugar, for sure. Sugary foods cause a lot of desire. And so what happens with one, one thing not to do to, that will really help is avoid processed factory foods, foods that come out of packages with lots of color on the label. There's a lot of American processed food that is there. They, have, they program the desire in there. It stimulates the taste buds and you can eat a whole bunch of it but you're still hungry and as a result your desire is still stimulated versus what? you know the words organic, natural, whole grain vegetables and food food that actually fills your stomach it kicks in your digestive processes your body feels nourished and full and your desire doesn't, doesn't kick off Connie, your you don't, you're not smiling. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Less junk food, right? Oh, no, I don't want to hear that. Okay. So you can eat f- a lot of food and still feel very hungry and your desire's off the off the charts because you put in food you didn't eat. Perfect example. If your car burns unleaded regular and you feed it high octane, if when you hit that pump you go to the third choice, right? High octane, your car will actually stop burning, stop running. And you'll harm your engine because the, it's the wrong gas, the wrong fuel. Your car runs fine on unleaded regular. Don't put in that one on the right, right? We don't do that to our bodies. We feed our bodies food that we can never digest, like meat, for example. I know you don't, but most people who are meat eaters, if they were reading their meters, would realize that the body has a very hard time processing all that cholesterol, all that fat, especially the antibiotics and the hormones, etc. So, if you can read your meters, you get food that is nutritious and doesn't increase desire. Um, one that I'm thinking of, oatmeal. <laughs> oatmeal is so bland, so flavorless, you know. But if you start the morning with a bowl of oatmeal... And you can make it interesting with like raisins and pine nuts and stuff. A bowl of oatmeal in the morning is still with you at noon. You know, and it's like, Mm. you just, you filled your tank with regular. And your car's running great. It just doesn't make your taste buds very happy. (laughs) So there's an example of food that allows you to hang on to the pole. And you're eating less. But more importantly, you're eating less flavorful, desire-filled food. So that's that's the my suggestion. That's how much vigor you have to use. And in a strange way, it's much harder to eat nourishing, flavorless food because why? It doesn't feed desire. And desire mostly is in charge of us. Mostly. So, you know. Okay, that's desire. And then... The third one, su fu, form. That word su is fascinating, fascinating word, because it means color in Chinese, color, yansu. But it has a second meaning, which is things that have form that the eye recognizes, and particularly, this word is used to refer to sexual desire. Confucius uh, said that human nature is made up of two things. One is food, and the other is sexual desire. That's the unregenerated human nature. That's to say, human nature, before it transforms to looking beyond form, beyond the body, into the spirit. So here, the bonds of form it's not the bonds of color, it's not the fetters of color. It's referring to form. Now, let's. When you, whenever the word sex comes in, there's all kinds of baggage around that, and we're. It's uh, uh, It stirs up more dust around the idea than than we need. So, I want to move this beyond the idea of. Uh, men being attracted to women, women being attracted to men, and all of the industry around that, fashion and you know uh, cosmetics and all of that, and go to a deeper notion, which is what? The bodhisattva, as he goes from points of view, which is pretty ethereal, right? An idea. To desire which is rooted in the senses, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. And then it goes on deeper into what? What's the first form that we encounter? Is our mother's womb. This is deep stuff. The bodhisattva, as he or she is able to meditate, is untying the ties that bring him, her, into life. Deeper and deeper. We are deeply attached to that first sensation that we got when who knows what month it was, when we were aware that we were in Mother's womb and she was patting us, maybe calling our name. We were hearing what? Bump, bump. Bump, bump. Bump, bump. Bump, bump. That was our first awareness, was that mother's heartbeat. And then there were sounds of circulation of the blood. What could be more regular than the rhythm of breathing? That's form. It's way beyond the idea of sexual attraction. Men look at women, women look at men. That's deep. This is deeper. This is before... Any kind of sexual differentiation happened of male and female. Everybody identifies with that primal rhythm of heartbeat and breathing, circulation of blood. That's deep. Mom's protection of us, the warmth, the nutrition, the security of being in mom's belly, right? That's form. It's a bond, it's a tie. Right, we have that identity. We have that connection to our mothers. The bodhisattva, as he or she sits still, is getting to a place where they can recognize how much of a tie that is. Right. That's why when we hear yo mama jokes, we're deeply offended. Yo mama, if yo mama was any fatter, you know. Right. Is that an esoteric cultural reference? Okay, never mind. All right. We'll try another one. So, nobody can insult your mother. Right? That will provoke a fight immediately. Don't talk about my mother. Okay? True for men, true for women. We deeply love the source of our lives. So, si refers to primal form, the body, but substance itself. What does mother represent? She is nurturing. Existence, right? Mom is the source. That's why there's the power in the feminine. It's the source of life. It's a tie. We need that source before we exist. The bodhisattva is now able to see that and sever his/her deep ties to it. Why? Dharma's come together because of causes and conditions. So, when my mother celebrated her birthday at City of 10,000 Buddhas, the, according to Master Srin it was the first time a monastic, first time a left-home person's mother had had a birthday at a major Mahayana institution in America. A bit of American Buddhist history. The first time a monk's mother had her birthday at a monastery. My mother's 50th birthday. So, 60th, 60th birthday. So, um, So, she... She was there eating, you know, watching all the monks and nuns, and I'm watching my mother there in the dining room. Like, wow, this is pretty outrageous. And so Shirfu calls me up to the seat. He says, Gwojian. He said, why did you pick this woman to get born to? <laughs> Shufu? He said, yeah. He said, you have to be careful with her. Okay, Shirfu, <laughs> I sure will. He said... You know that story, Gu Gu Guai Guai Gu Gu. He says, Ah, uh, so that's <laughs> that's another. I, I wrote a song about that, and it's in your songbook. You can look it up. It's on page forty. No, so what in the world did he mean? Be careful. Why did you pick this woman to get? Do you mean I had a choice, careful? You know, I could choose my mother. You know. So he says, "I'm going to call her up here." So he said. Hongshir's mother, please come up. So my mother comes up. (laughs) He said, again to her, right there, he said, you know your son has followed me for life after life. And my mother said, yes, that's what you told me. I still don't understand that, but I'm sure it's very important, she said. (laughs) And then Shripu said, it's really important for you to start cultivating yourself. He said, your conditions with me are even deeper than your son's, he said do you understand? and my mother said no, but I think Hung Shur will explain it to me she said <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, sure mom so, anyway Shurpo said I want you now to speak Dharma for all the monks and nuns he said and I'm thinking oh my god only my teacher would say something like that my mother I mean, how do I explain this? and she said thank you very much I would like to do that right now she said <laughs> mom? you know okay so my mother launched into a Dharma talk for the Sangha at the City of 10,000 Buddhas. She said, all of you cultivators of the Dharma realm. I said, where did you, have you been reading Vajra Bodhisi? She said, yes, of course. Yes, I understand. And she said, I want you to understand that you all came from your parents, And I hope you get enlightened quickly, but before you get enlightened, you have to tell your parents how you're doing. You need to write to them every week, she said. (laughs) So I'm, you know, sure who's smiling, you know. He says, you should listen to her, he said. And so I'm translating and hearing my mother scold the monks and nuns at City of 10,000 Buddhas for not writing letters to their parents to tell them how they're doing in their quest for enlightenment. You know, it's like, oh, my God. So I translated, so my mom went on to say, you know, you talk about filial respect, but you don't behave like filial children. If you were really filial, you would tell your parents how you're doing here at the city of 10,000 Buddhas." I'm going, <laughs> right, mom, you know, and she said, and that includes you, she said, pointing to me. So, okay, okay. So here's my mother delivering a Dharma talk in the dining room at city of 10,000 Buddhas. And I've just heard Shurfu say that her conditions with him are deeper than mine. I, okay, I don't understand anything that's going on. What in the world? What a wonderful teacher to be able to say something like that. So anyway, he then brought out the birthday cake, and my mother was so happy to, you know, have a birthday cake. And and uh, so afterwards, uh, I I thought that the other sangha members were going to just you know being scolded by hungshur's mother so in fact it was not that they hungshur came up and she said that was a wonderful dharma talk she said that was you know there was nobody who was not listening closely <laughs> and uh, sherpa said so hungshur's mother we invite you back every year to come and speak dharma for us and so she said i I don't think I'll be able to do that but thank you very much she said you know the diplomatic methodist churchwoman so anyway so what an amazing story the bonds of form are stronger than we know how strong right the bonds of form okay what's next how do you go deeper than your identity with your mother's body yo fu the bonds of existence Existence itself, what is it? Comes together because of yin yuan, causes and conditions. And when those conditions end, the the bonds the bonds of existence that was a power spike, I think. The bonds of existence there's another one. The bonds of existence, when the bonds of existence come apart, their electricity stops, mm-hmm. right? And we go back to my voice, your ears, no amplification. So, existence itself is deeper than reincarnation from a womb. And then, wuming fu, the bonds of ignorance. That's the deepest level. So, what is wuming? Wuming is the first of the 12 links of conditioned arising. When wuming, when ignorance, avidya in Sanskrit, which means no light, Wuming means absence of light. When the absence of light is ended, what do you have? You have your Buddha nature. The Buddha nature without anything covering it at all. Which, according to the sutras, is bright light. That's the start. So these are the things that tie us to suffering. To continued existence and birth and death, reincarnation. There they are, sequentially laid out for us. This is the stuff that kills us and brings us back over and over again. And who makes it happen? You could say that the problem is causes and conditions. But behind those causes and conditions is intention, is the mind that wants stuff that has a body, that is embodied, that exists just like a spark somehow and then covered over with darkness comes into being. There it is. And it says bit by bit by bit by bit by bit over many many how many eons of time limitless hundreds of thousands of millions of nayutas of eons check this is how it goes away. Bu ji ji gu. Because it doesn't accumulate. Ji ji means it comes together. Because it doesn't accumulate. Xie tan, xie chen, xie chi. Three poisons. And these poisons, the definition is xie. Crooked greed. Wrong anger. And misguided says stupidity. But it could just be delusion, wrong thinking. She the true Duan, because they don't come together, they stop. Completely get to true stop Duan cut. They cease. Soyo shanggun Duan Ming Jing and all of the wholesome qualities that are also there in the nature, progressively, gradually get bright. They brighten. Your nature shines. So, the Dharma is always round. On one hand, here's the Buddha like a doctor saying, here's where you're sick. You thought you had a problem. You have a bigger problem than you knew. Look, you've got ignorance. And that ignorance brings about existence and you don't know where it came from. And then, you come into a body and then because the body has these senses, you go out and you desire stuff that you think is going to satisfy you. And then, what then you have an opinion about it and you love it and you want it and you identify yeah I'm loving it McDonald's you know you deserve a break today I know what I like and I, marketing will sell it to me right I'm a Ford man so that's the process and then the Buddha Dharma, then the Buddha says and you want to end it you can gradually, bit by bit, it doesn't accumulate anymore because the poisons that keep us upside down go away. It names three greed, anger or hatred, and wrong views, delusion, confusion, being upside down. Those are the things that, in any given minute, like you'd think, well, of course we should understand principle. But greed, anger, and delusion flip us upside down and allow us to do things that, as, as Shifu would say, we turn our backs to the Tao and run the other way. Right? We don't go for the truth. We run for delusion. We want more of the wrong stuff. And that's what's called what? Being a living being. That's a sentient being. That's the definition of it. So we really think that luck is going to do it for us. This time for sure. Throw the dice. Oh! Now I have now to sell my car because that was my last buck that I lost at the gambling table. We think this time for sure. This is going to make me happy. Get this, and finally I win. You're the big winner. So there it is greed, anger, delusion. And bit by bit, because they no longer accumulate, the bodhisattva cuts them off. And the goodness that's also there starts to shine. So there it is. This is so powerful. It's kind of like this is the recipe for why it hurts, and this is how it can stop hurting. Okay. That's the paragraph. I said to, to some folks that I wanted to have a conversation tonight instead of a preaching, instead of a, a discourse. And I still do. But I, I wanted to get all the way through this paragraph because it's so um, it goes so deep and yet it's it's so kind hearted. Behind this is the Bodhisattva's wish to, to make it hurt less. And I thought, well, what what can we talk about? And then uh, I got an email earlier today about an article that is that I read and it's uh, changed my thinking. Every now and then you run into an article that changes your thinking. And this was, was printed in Rolling Stone by Bill McKibben. People know Bill McKibben. He's a thinker on the environment. And it's called Global Warming's Terrifying New Math, Mathematics. The New Terrifying Mathematics of Global Warming. Bill McKibben is a a man who's in touch with change. And he's, this is the brand new Rolling Stone just published. And he's writing about um, the situation right now for climate change. And when I read it, um, I found it terrifying. Because it's based on xie tan xie chen shea, xie, crooked sheer deviant. We used to translate it deviant. This is bad translation. We want to say it's off base. Crooked means shea means not straight. It means like this. It's it's on its way down. It's wrong, a uh, twisted sheer Sometimes. It means wrong-headed greed is the reason why 3,215 high-temperature records were set across the United States in the last two months. 3,215 places that that keep temperature set a new record in the last two months never been so hot. Further, this is the warmest May on record in the Northern Hemisphere. We have had 327 consecutive months in which the globe's, the planet's temperature was higher than the 20th century. The 21st century has been around for 12 years. Right? And these 12 years into the 21st century, 327 consecutive months, the whole planet, everywhere you look, is higher than, of course, any other time in the 100 years of the 20th 20th century. So in a very short time, our temperature has gone up on the planet. The chances of that being chance is... 3.7 times 10 to the 99th power, which is what? A number considerably larger than the number of stars in the universe. So it's not luck. It's not, oh, well, this is just a hot season, right? No, 327 consecutive months of the 21st century are warmer by a lot than the entire 20th century. The numbers, the new terrifying math that he talks about, he says... 2 degrees Celsius, which is 3.1 3. Uh, Fahrenheit. Uh, here it is, uh, 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. As soon as we are 2 degrees Celsius, centigrade, warmer than ever before, cities and countries will disappear underwater. That's the that's the percentage of change that it'll take to melt the ice caps. And he goes on to say the problem that most people before the twenty first century didn't even know are is hydrocarbons, which come from burning fossil fuel. The stuff we pull up out of the ground and use to burn creates carbon dioxide, CO2. That carbon dioxide goes out in the air and it deflects the sun. And it, it's a complicated how it actually works, but the result is that what used to filter out the sunlight doesn't filter it and things are melting. The temperature goes up because of the carbon dioxide that comes from burning fossil fuels, he says. And it's we're going very, very, very fast to that two degrees, he says. And the result is, what, hottest year in history ever, last two months, June, May. So he's going, he's saying we don't even know where to look to to say change it and he says the places to go to change it are coal and oil coal and oil he goes on there he's there are three figures i won't give you the whole article but i will recommend it i'm going to post it on my blog so people can read it it's rolling stone global warming's terrifying new math McKibben is the article M-C-K-I-B-B-E-N he says that the companies responsible for the carbon dioxide are the companies whose profit depends upon selling more oil and more coal and they have in motion right now the plan to pull the last of it out of the earth the last of it they it's if all we have to do is not interfere with Shell British Petroleum Gazprom and Russia and a couple others and they will extract the last of it China and India need it for all their new cars they are not going to stop until the last of it is gone so uh, it's really scary and the way it shakes down is things like what? Fracking? You all know about hydro-fracturing? People are using natural gas, and the gas companies have gone into communities all over the United States. Places like Ohio and Pennsylvania and Iowa and North Dakota and Texas and California. They're injecting high-pressure steam down into the earth to get to a layer where there's natural gas to release it and then harvesting the natural gas and the result of this is number one, it's really dirty and it pollutes it pollutes the water table because you have to go down to the water table so that a few oil companies can continue their profits they are polluting the water that we need, furthermore when you get in there and shake stuff up earthquakes happen the earthquake that shook Washington, D.C. last year, where it gets a solid rock table that shouldn't have any earthquake. right? Earthquakes in Ohio, where I live, Sandusky, Ohio, earthquakes. No earthquake there. The, the plates don't move. It's a solid mass. Well, earthquakes. Why? Because oil companies, against the wishes of the citizens, are going in there putting steam down. So that's this desire, shetan Crooked greed, right, is consuming the blood of the planet, which you could say is the oil and the coal, for the profit of a very few. And one of the products is the planet's warming up. So McKibben is a guy who's paying attention. He says, even if we stopped today and just said, quit pulling this stuff out of the planet the the pro, you don't speed up temperature or slow it down it's like turning an ocean liner you can only turn it bit by bit even if we stop today he says chances are it's too late you've seen i saw i told you last week i saw my first picture of a dead polar bear polar bear washed up on the shore looking like kind of like a dried out teddy bear you know, some kids reject the teddy bear. You saw those pictures of the polar bears on shrinking chunks of ice, right? The polar bear standing on a little parcel of ice. Well, that little parcel of ice is gone. Polar bears are dying. They are going to go away very soon. So if you can see a polar bear, look quick. They're going to go away. And after that, the, you know, the Eskimos, the Inuit, the Native American people, Canadians who depend upon ice, who live on the ice... SEALs, many species, and bit by bit, humanity. McKibben is saying that the as we probably won't react until New York is underwater. Probably won't. It'll take something like that to get people to say, hey, I think there's a problem. What do we do? You guys in the white coats, fix it. President Romney, Obama, fix it right so that's what we do we react we don't preempt we don't think ahead we react so here we go greed and then anger and then confusion how interesting because there's a link right here so I was thinking what would the Dharma say if we said what do we do what do we do well we look to humanity. People have the solution. So where's the problem? My answer is, the problem is in our relationships. And I I was motivated reading this this afternoon to write something, write, write this down, because I believe the Buddha Dharma can talk to this. Relationships. If you think about the precepts, killing, stealing, lust... Lies, those first four, have to do with other people. That's how we enter society. We kill each other, steal from each other, rape or break up relationships, and we lie to each other. Those are all social mistakes. So relationships are key. If instead we say, you know what? I am going to act from now on as if every single thing I did impacted the people around me. I couldn't be greedy, I couldn't be hateful, and I couldn't be selfish. Let's say selfish is stupid, thinking I'm alone. If every single thing I did came from a place of connection so that I knew that I wasn't alone, that I'm not here as a rugged individual who's out to get his own and never mind the rest of you, I couldn't waste stuff. I couldn't take more than mine. I would have to behave like a bodhisattva in the third ground who sees the connection between everybody. Imagine if every single thing I did, I had to take into consideration the impact of it on other people. That's a solution. That would cure it right there. That would change things. Right? I don't know. I mean, that's an idealistic, but it comes right down to it. And here, here I am. Tomorrow I'm jumping on a big airplane, which is going to be pumping out carbon dioxide halfway around the globe, you know, and underneath as well. I'm going to be traveling for 24 hours before I get to my destination on three airplanes. And each one goes... takes off and pumps this black smoke out. So what is my share of that? It's like, oops, that pinches, you know. One thing is, I'm going to dust off my bicycle seat and ride my bike more. Because what comes out of my nose is a much less impact than what comes out the tailpipe of the car. Is like, you know. So what can I do that, again, you know, I told Connie about changing the diet, glass of milk by glass of milk. What do I do to, to look into my relationships? Number one would be to try to be aware, try to recognize what, in fact, is the impact of my behavior. Where's a good place to start? words. Suppose I decided to not use four-letter words, to never speak harshly, to not say words that I knew were going to burn somebody's heart because it was a four-letter word. That would be a really useful place to start. Then, suppose... I analyzed every purchase I made with the question, is this need or is it greed? If it's greed, I always know. I really can't hide it if I know. And if it's not greed, then go ahead. Sometimes you absolutely need it. You know, It's not the case that everything is greed, no. But when it's greed if I'm aware that I can do greedy things and it be the impact on that affects everybody, then bit by bit, if I recognize it, I have a chance to reduce it. Reduce it. So I think that's a genuinely awakened way to step into the climate crisis and... There are no huge decisions. You say, well, it doesn't matter. It's the CEO of Shell that makes it. No. CEO of Shell listens to the board of directors. The board of directors are human beings who happen to own the shares. They all have kids, drive cars, go to college, take vacations, eat food. It all comes down to little decisions that I make day by day by day that finally make the turn things. And if I don't, as a monk who's thinking about this, if I don't change the little decisions, nobody, nothing will ever change. I think big decisions only arise from lots of little decisions. So, anyway, right in this passage, I see a solution to the climate crisis, to climate change, global warming, which is identifying how the Bodhisattva recognizes where things come from. They come into being because of causes and conditions. And there's a process by which I am gradually made a separate, isolated, broken unit where it doesn't matter what I do because I don't know you, you're a stranger, I can pull the trigger and shoot you dead in the movie theater. Why? It doesn't matter. Did my thing, dude. Go for it. Like, no, it impacts everybody. You know, you're really connected. We are really connected. So here's that process ignorance, existence, primal form, embodiment, desire, and then points of view. When it gets to the views, it's already subtle and out there in the ether. When it gets down to ignorance, it covers us. And it's, I don't know. I really don't know. So the Bodhisattva starts with the viewpoints and goes gradually back to that covering. When that covering is gone, we are connected like sunlight to everybody. Okay, so just some thoughts. We haven't got to the conversation. Can you give me another hour and we can have a conversation? What else are you doing tonight? So anyway, there's... I think there's a solution in the Dharma right here. And I would recommend this if you want to be scared, something terrifying. Talk about real terror. Who are the terrorists? Mm. Okay, can we first transfer the merit and then... In the um, back of your songbook is the dedication of merit, and that's a way to exercise that deep connection by sending out goodness from your heart.